This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories. And we tell stories about everything here on this show. And our favorite thing to tell stories about is the founding of this nation, because it's not understood, and stories are not being told about it. And that's one of the core missions of what we do here is to make sure we know our past so we can know our future. And we're celebrating Constitution Week all week long on the 17th of September back in 1787. The founders signed the Constitution, the delegates to the Constitutional Convention. And so thus our storytelling and bringing us the story. Well, there's no better man than Hillsdale College President Dr. Larry Arne. He's a constitutional scholar and author of The Founder's Key, The Divine and Natural Connection Between the Declaration of Independence and the Constitution and What We Risk by Losing It. Today, he'll share with us the importance of the Constitution, its meaning, and why our founding fathers fought for our nation to have it. Here's our own Monty Montgomery, a Hillsdale graduate himself, with a story. We may not think about it today, but when the Constitution of the United States was first written, it was a revolutionary document. We were the first in the world dominated by hereditary monarchies to write and recognize as a fundamental basis of our government that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights, and that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. We had the fight for that to be true, though, Here's Dr. Larry Arn, president of Hillsdale College, with more. You know, it's hard for us to look back on the past and understand that they're living just the way we are without knowledge of the future. And if you can grasp that fact about the people in Philadelphia, those men in that little room, they just passed it and put their names on the Declaration of Independence. And, you know, we know what the king thought. The king thought... This is a crazy claim. I'm the king, and you have to obey the king, and the king has to be good to you. And so this is crazy. So they're introducing a thing that nobody believes, and then add to it, they're introducing it in controversy, ultimately treason, against the strongest living force. And so what possible chance could they have? When they wrote the Declaration of Independence, They didn't really have anything that you could call an army. And uh, George Washington had been appointed head of it because he had the most experience of anybody in war, of anybody in the revolutionary side. But he had never moved a large body of troops from one place to another or fed them along the way in his life. And the British were practiced at all that stuff and had hundreds of staff guys who knew all about how to do that. And so in the beginning, the war was ridiculous because we couldn't get our army around anywhere. And the British would always just encircle us, right? It was just funny how bad it was. And so the implausibility of it also demonstrates something, and that is they really believed this, and they were prepared to die for it. The stakes were life and death. They, uh, th- there was a warrant issued for their arrest to the British general commanding the troops in North America. In other words, not an order to a policeman who would put them in jail and then take them before a judge, a soldier. 
who would detain them and ship them to England or hang them on the spot where they were arrested. So that's, you know, the last sentence of the Declaration of Independence says, in support of these of this declaration, we mutually pledge to each other our lives, our fortunes, and our sacred honor. And many of them lost those lives or their fortunes, none of them their honor. The founders were essentially signing their death warrants, which is impressive because not everybody in the colonies supported independence. The guesses tend to congregate around 30% strongly for the revolution and a majority of the rest against or leaning against and a bunch of people trying to make up their minds. And if you just think about it, that this is a people, by the way, you have, to, you have to remember this. For 150 years, English settlers especially had been on the North American continent, and they had developed the richest, deepest practices and institutions of self-government in human history. And they did that on their own, and the British had influence on it through the appointment of a governor general in each of the colonies. But that was it, right? And they raised their own taxes, and they paid their own bills and all that. And the British claimed, you don't pay us for defending you, and so you got to pay. So they, they had all that, and they're used to deciding things for themselves. Now, on the other hand, this is like a huge decision, and nobody knows where it's going to go. And we're used to these British, and are they really so bad? Most people were very reluctant about this. And that makes for a remarkable story, too, because the way the war ended, you know, it went on forever, by the way. And the way it ended was Cornwallis, who was a very good general and ended up being the one ultimately defeated in the final battle at Yorktown. Cornwallis decided that down in the south, there was a lot of public support for the British and they would go down there and it would be easier to take care of their army and they would have, they could you know raise and you know, nourish themselves and increase their strength by having a population at their back that's what the British thought they needed they didn't have, they never had that right well they found out that they didn't like them any better in North and South Carolina than they liked them in Massachusetts and then they extended their supply lines and so they all got raided like crazy and they lost their goods and it was just a devil to sustain their army you know that's when francis marion the swamp fox became famous so he didn't have any support right and that demonstration is what led him to take his army back northwards to yorktown near the sea in virginia where he got bottled up because the french fleet kept the british fleet away for once in in a lifetime and they destroyed Cornwallis's army. Well, that means that opinion apparently congealed in favor of this thing. And you've been listening to Dr. Larry Arn, president of Hillsdale College, a constitutional scholar and who deeply understands the connection between the Declaration of Independence, the Revolutionary War, and the Constitution That's why we have that backdrop and that background for the story about the Constitution, which continues our celebration of Constitution Day and week here on Our American Story. (music) 
And we continue with Our American Stories and our Constitution Week, our special celebration of the signing of the Constitution back on September 17th, 1787. And all week long, every year around this time, we will always tell these stories. There are stories every American needs to know about our rich and complex and sometimes tragic history, but heroic as well. When we last left off, we had gained our independence. The United States would exist under the Articles of Confederation, which weren't working out for us well despite the fact that it was a completely new concept unseen in the world at the time. But with these issues in mind, the founders decided they wanted to draft a new rule of law for our nation at the Constitutional Convention. Here is Dr. Arn with more on the story. It is as fundamental as the problem addressed in the Declaration of Independence. Who has proper title to rule? And that's the age-old political question. That's what Plato's Republic is about, among other things. And so they address that, and that, that's, that's what you call in classical thinking final causality. What's the ultimate reason, the ultimate good that establishes something? But then the second thing is, because they adopted this new principle that had never been adopted before, they're going to require a different way of governing, and that's what we call the formal cause, the form, the way we will work together so it can work. And there's no experience in human history like that. So they they thought that it would be very hard to make this work. And, you know, in the beginning, under the Articles of Confederation, the colonies were ridiculous. They didn't pay their bills. They didn't keep their commitments to one another. They wouldn't sustain an army. They didn't have any credit. This growing country, desperately in need of capital, couldn't borrow any money. And then parts of the countryside, especially in Massachusetts, fell out of the rule of law. And uh, a man named Shea is a farmer. He led a rebellion against collecting mortgages. So when the day when the mortgages were due, there'd be bodies of men and they would come and shut down the banks and stop the collection of debt. And of course, that meant then necessarily nobody could borrow any money. And so everything was grinding to a halt. And Madison lists all of this in preparation for the preparation to go to the Constitutional Convention. This is called The Vices of the Political System of the United States. And he lists them all, right? And he says that what they boil down to is our worst selves are in control because the passion of the moment is what decides everything and passions change. And so we need a structure or form of government that would achieve something. Madison says in Federalist Papers that the thing it achieves is our reason alone must be placed in control of the government. Our passions must be controlled by it. And so now these new governors, right, because now we're not going to be governed by a king. We're going to be governed by ourselves. And the question is, what part of ourselves? The better part, what Lincoln called the better angels of our nature, or the worst part? So the Constitutional Convention was called on May 25, 1787, by men like James Madison and Alexander Hamilton. But there were other names there who were deeply important for this proposed change in direction, to have any real change at all. 
If you had to name one who was indispensable, it's Washington. In his case, that is literally the case, according to James Madison. Washington had so distinguished himself in the Revolution by the combination of his bravery and his proof of how trustworthy he was with power because he resigned. There's a story that may or may not be true, but uh, there's, there's evidence for the story. It's never been fully established. Anyway, the prime minister says after the Battle of Yorktown had passed, you know, we have to have a peace conference here. You know, the king didn't want to do it. He'd lost the new world, and that's a bad, bad thing to happen to a fellow. And the king said, George Washington will not know how to be a king. He will be a tyrant, and people will want me back. Now, you see the assumption, right? Conquerors always get to be rulers after they conquer. Napoleon, everybody in history, right? So the prime minister said, I understand that General Washington has resigned his commission and gone home. And the king is said to have said, he stirred himself and said, if he did that, he's the greatest man alive. If that story is not true, I can tell you why it had currency. That's what everybody thought. And they thought that because he had. So they can't really call the convention without him. And there was an episode that proves this because not long before the convention, you know, Madison and Hamilton were the chief busybodies getting the convention called. And they did the most thinking about how to do it. And they had heavy influence but not dominant during the convention and they think they can't get anybody to come unless they got George Washington coming and George Washington got scruples about coming because there was a rumor and George Washington didn't like rumors and the rumor was about the society of the Cincinnati and this society was formed was formed by people who fought in the Revolutionary War and they would get together so anyway that thing was accused of being an aristocratic society and so Washington was accused of trying to start an aristocracy. It's actually the opposite what the point was. And so there was this, a meeting scheduled of the society, and he made up an excuse not to go so he wouldn't be rumored about or leave the impression that he was an aristocrat. But then that was about the time of the Constitutional Convention, and so he said he wasn't going to go to that because he didn't want to embarrass the society of the Cincinnati. And uh, James Madison in Montpelier, also in Virginia, read the letter from Washington, and he didn't answer the letter. He got on his horse and went there, and he talked him into going. And he didn't think he could hold it if Washington didn't go. And at the convention, Washington really only said a couple of things, one at the end, he stated a slight reservation about one provision of the Constitution, and still he thought it was an excellent document and should be supported. And that was his way of leading, because he's telling everybody, I'm surrendering my objection for the sake of the common good. And then when George Washington spoke that way, everybody listened. You know, the Constitution had to be passed, and, it, and uh, they did a clever thing which also makes a kind of a gap in the logic of the history of America. Because Lincoln's presentation of the history and the Federalist presentation during the Revolution is the colonies came together, they'd always been united through the empire, and they came together and formed the nation on a day, and there was never a day where they were separate. But by calling for, uh, by setting up the Constitution, 
so that it could be ratified by only nine states, that left the prospect that maybe four wouldn't join. Now, they did all join eventually, Rhode Island three years later. But what if it hadn't, right? And South Carolina in 1860, during its secession, makes a lot of that point. But they did that because they knew that it would be hard to get unanimity. But if they could get to nine, then the other four would feel immense pressure to join. And that's exactly what happened, by the way. It was hardest in the big states, in Virginia and Massachusetts and New York, big power states, right? But you had uh, James Madison to argue for it in Virginia, and they brought John Hancock out of retirement to argue for it in Massachusetts. And then by the time it got to New York, they could see that they really didn't have much choice because most of the Union had joined, and it was enough to go into effect. But you have to add Roger Sherman, who was a very great man from Connecticut. He proposed the compromise that united the small and the large states. Because, of course, the, and Madison and Hamilton's plan was that it would be uh, the, the new, the federal government would become representative of people only, and so therefore the large states would have more representatives, and that it would be able to legislate in all cases whatsoever. And that means no enumeration of powers. That was the original plan of Madison and Hamilton. And the two great changes to the document were on those two points. And the compromise that came was that the House representatives would represent people and the Senate would represent states. And that brought them together. And then the concerns of runaway big government were very much alleviated by this enumeration device. So in other words, the federal government can only do the things that are said there that it can do. And you're listening to Dr. Larry Oren, president of Hillsdale College, constitutional scholar and author. And as always, our Constitution Week is sponsored by the great folks at Hillsdale College, also the Stetson Family Office, and more of this remarkable story told by a great storyteller here on Our American Stories. And we continue with Our American Stories and with Larry Arn, president of Hillsdale College, on the meaning and importance of our Constitution by the way, go to hillsdale.edu. Family members should, at least this week, sit down and watch the Constitution 101 course. It is superb. Indeed, I went to the University of Virginia School of Law, and I learned things in that Constitution course of Hillsdale's that I did not learn in three years at UVA. And so I urge you all, go to hillsdale.edu and take the Constitution 101 course. It's free, it's beautiful, and it's good. And it's an important thing to do with your family this week. Arne now breaks down the Constitution itself into its most important parts, starting with the legislative branch. All government starts with legislation. If it's to be government and it's to be uh, something other than Adolf Hitler making up his mind today what to do, then there has to be some process for 
recording a law. It has to be legitimate, the law. And especially if you're going to have consent of the governed, then there has to be a representative process to pick the ones who pass the law. And until there's law, there's nothing for the government to do. So that's why it's first. And that's the most important branch. And they thought it was the most dangerous branch because they, you know, the political science of the founding, which draws heavily on the classics. And what classic philosophy teaches you is that human beings have volition. That is to say, they can decide what to do and become the source of their own actions. And so the great question is, are the actions good? And to be good, they have to be restrained. Now, in our society, the great strength comes from being close to the people. And the legislature is closest to the people because there's a lot of members of the legislature and they represent uh, districts or states and they have an intense part of the political community for whom they work. And so they have a lot of authority and so the founders are afraid that this body will take over and dominate all the government. So yeah, the legislature is first and it's got to contain protections and the chief protections in it, in that article, are two. One is there are two houses and a law can't be a law until both of them pass it and then the president signs it. And the second one is there's a list of things they can do and they're not given power to do any other things. Then there's the executive branch. You know, the, much of the debate between the Federalists and the Anti-Federalists in the ratification stage of the Constitution is about whether this executive is going to become a king. And the argument in the Federalist is you shouldn't divide the executive. It should just be one thing. And there are two reasons for that. One is the spirit of executive action is execution. The spirit of legislative action is deliberation. Deliberation. We need to talk and think. You know, we just said these people had the experience that the Constitutional Convention went very well and they came to an agreement and they made it better, they thought and wrote, most of them, than they any of them would have made by themselves, right? So they're to think and talk and it's supposed to take time. On the other hand, the executive's on a schedule all the time. Stuff is happening. And so he's got to be empowered to act. He only is to execute the law. That's the limit on him. But he's got wide latitude, and he's given all of that power, just, by the way, as the Congress has given all of the legislative power. So the, the president, the first attribute is there's just one of him. They think, then, to the second, that that makes him more accountable because there's no confusion about who to blame. And that's the argument in the Federalists. So you get this unitary executive who only begins work when the Congress has finished its work, although he has a share of the legislative power, too. He has to sign the bills, and he can veto bills, and he can, he can be overridden by a supermajority in the Congress, but that means, effectively, they gave the president one-sixth of the legislative power. And so he's a pivotal person, and he's the one who does things. It's a different animal, and it's very important but you can't say that any part of the government is more important than others. It's the combination of them that makes the thing. But you want the right things done. And the right things are constitutional. So we have the judicial branch. We mistake 
so much about the judiciary now. They have an absolute power, but it's very specific. And that is the case in front of them, that will be, it, it will arise either by a dispute between two citizens and neither of them can decide it alone because they're equals, or else it's the government doing something to a citizen. And that means the power of the executive branch, armed with law, has reached out his hand and grabbed them round the neck. And then he, he can't do anything to them until he takes them to a judge who he cannot fire and who has taken an oath to the law alone. You know, people say, is China going to become like us? I can tell you how you'll tell if they actually did have an independent judiciary. So that point, right, that I'm going to get taken before somebody who's got a very different source of authority and who cannot be removed by the powerful branches of the government, and he can let me go. And then we have the Bill of Rights, which is an important addition to the Constitution that we often forget was almost an afterthought. Dr. Arn explains why and how this document came to be. So Madison and Hamilton and the people who dominated or mostly got their way in the Constitutional Convention didn't want a Bill of Rights. They said, first of all, it'd be a source of mischief because you'll list some rights and then others will be left off. That's why they wrote the Ninth Amendment they did, the way they did, right? They say there are others too. Just because they're here doesn't mean that's all. Then they said, this is just a parchment barrier Whereas the real protection of our rights is in the structure of the Constitution, the way the powers are divided to yield both effectiveness and constraint. And just making a list of rights won't help. And so that was the argument that apparently prevailed at the convention. They didn't propose a Bill of Rights. But here's what it came down to. You know, Virginia is a big and mighty and powerful state, and Massachusetts is a big and mighty and powerful state, and New York is a big and mighty and powerful state. And they see that they're going to ratify the, the Constitution, and they want to negotiate and get something. And it's interesting what they demand. They didn't say, you know, make sure my port remains the main port in America, or the government do all its banking in my borders, or anything, any of that log-rolling stuff. They asked for a Bill of Rights. And what's interesting is none of the states that asked for that in the ratification conventions, and there were several, wrote into their ratification that that was a condition of the ratification. They took the word of the people campaigning for the Constitution, who had been opponents of a Bill of Rights. And sure enough, James Madison gave his word in Virginia and he led the charge for it in the Congress after the new government went into operation. And that tells you something about how they thought back then, right? They thought there was an agreement. Government is for this, is to protect these rights. And we're not going to ask for anything special for ourselves. We're going to ask for firmer protection of these rights. And that's always seemed to me, by the way, a sign of the kind of friendship that underlie the controversies of the ratification process. Because remember, these people trusted these guys to do this after the Constitution went into effect, and their trust proved not to be misplaced.
And a special thanks to Dr. Larry Arn and to the folks at Hillsdale College. And again, we need to know this story and so many more surrounding our nation's founding. We tell a lot of them here on Our American Stories, and Hillsdale College has played an essential part, and they are responsible for our this days and histories and so much more. Also, a special thanks to the Stetson Family Office for sponsoring this week of programming. Celebrating Constitution Day and Constitution Week here on Our American Stories. And we're back with Our American Stories, and we tell a lot of stories about families on this show. And today, we bring you some stories from Mark Oppenheimer, whose piece in the Wall Street Journal really caught our attention. Its title, Yes, We Really Do Want to Have a Fifth Child. Mark, a few generations ago, a family having four or more kids would have been nothing remarkable. But now, that's increasingly rare. As you wrote, quote, In 1976, 40% of mothers aged 40 to 44 had four or more children. Today, only 13% do. And when it comes to mothers with graduate degrees, like your wife, only 8%. Talk a little about how you and your bride decided that you wanted a big family. When we first met, before we were even dating, My wife and I were talking one time, and it came up just naturally that I thought four would be a nice number of children to have. And and I'm one of four children. I'm the eldest of four children in the family that I come from. So that always seemed perfectly normal. And then my wife, who's one of two, said, oh, yeah, I always thought my family seemed a little small. I thought it'd be nice if there were three or four of us. So we both had a sense that four was a, a nice number of children to have. And we were very lucky, and we we had four children in the first 10 years uh, of our marriage. Actually, I guess we had four children in the first eight years of our marriage. And then um, a couple years ago, we were talking, and I forget who said it first, but one of us said, wouldn't it be fun to have one more? And I, the other one said, yeah, that'd be fun. And so then we did. And I think it was not something that we interrogated too deeply. It was not, we didn't go and check our bank account. We knew that we would be as... Um, as as impoverished uh, with five, we would be we would be it, it, you know either way we weren't taking fancy vacations with four kids or five. It, it, you know once you're up to four kids and and you're on the salary of a, of a writer uh, and and uh, you know my wife is is mostly a homemaker though she's a lawyer by training. You know we're not wealthy people. We don't have regular paid childcare. But if you're going to be home with four, you might as well be home with five, and it's one more person to love. So. I don't have a I don't have any profound thoughts on it except we did what we wanted to do and it's a free country so we we were able to do that. Indeed. And and by the way you note in the piece we are not conservative traditionalists, not orthodox Jews, old school Catholics or Mormons, nor nope. are we lefty counterculturalists. We have no aversion to birth control, chemical or otherwise. We're pretty basic middle class HBO watchers. My idea of living on the edge is refusing to give up soda. So so talk about the becauses. One of them that was interesting, you brought up your Jewishness. Talk about that, because I think that's important. I've had conversations with my Jewish friends who said, you know, hey, we're just, we're, we're shrinking in numbers. 
there's debate about Jewish numbers. Uh, there's debate about demography. What is certainly true is that the community of Jews who are not Orthodox or what they call ultra-Orthodox Jews is shrinking. The number of Jews who are Reform or Conservative Jews uh, by denomination is uh, pretty precarious and is, is probably crashing over the next couple of generations. And I do think that for, for Jewry to be a robust uh, community, a robust and diverse community that's not all based in a couple smaller sects. It's auspicious if there are, you know, lots of babies in all of those communities. I wouldn't say that's why we had a fifth child, but right. I take I take some pleasure in the fact. I mean, I, it, it cheers me that there is at least one family, and we do know of others for whom this is a real choice. You know irrespective of some commandment from God not to use birth control, which is not who we are culturally or religiously. This, this for many families, is a delightful way to live, and that the, the community, and, and in our case, we have a lot of identities, Jewish is one, and you know, American is another, but, but speaking of the Jewish community, that it's, um, that it's good for the community to have families of different sizes. But we certainly have plenty of people modeling not having children or having only one or two. And I think it's great if there are models of people having four or five. Indeed. And I think there are some parts of this country where you start walking around and pushing five, six kids, you're going to get some really weird glances. And, and by, by virtue of the opposite, there are some communities in this country where if you're married and you have no kids, you'll get some weird looks. And there were a bunch of other becauses, and this is the answer to have a fifth Four children has improved my life. Talk about that. Well, that's true. I think that anyone who has any number of children, if, if it's a relatively normally happy family, which means happy sometimes and other times in conflict or fighting or you know, having the normal struggles people have. But if you're a relatively normal family, one of the things that's true about having even one child is once the child comes along, within a few weeks or months, you can't imagine your life before that child. They become part of what you're grateful for when you think of your own existence. And for us, and I think for all people who have multiple children, that's as true of the second and third and fourth as it is of the first. I don't think that anyone wants to trade in any one of their children or give back any one of their children. I mean, sometimes you do. Right, sometimes. <laughs> right? sometimes I can tell you, I, you know, I'll send this one away. And, you know, at those times, it's, that's what grandma and grandpa's house is for. You know, there is a kind of logic to the fact that whatever the next child you have is, you will love that child as much as you loved the last one. And so there is a kind of drive to have more, I think. Another because. Because with a big family, I never have to feel guilty about the clutter. <laughs> I forgot I wrote that. Yeah. That's true. I mean, I'm not a super neat and tidy person. And if I had no children, I'd have a lot of clutter, but then I'd be a little bit ashamed of it. <laughs> but with five children, everyone says, oh, of course, you know, how, how could you have a neat house? So it does, it does let you off the hook for some things. I mean, uh, you know, another example of that is if you have one child, you might feel, well, I have to save enough to send this child to college. When you have five children, there's no prayer that I can afford to send them all to college without a lot of financial aid. So there are ways in which taking on more can be liberating. Indeed. And you also wrote this, because I'm scared of being alone. Absolutely. I mean, I, and I think most parents, if they're being honest, would say that that's part of why we, we grow our families, whether it's just from one person to two, if you're a single person who has a child or adopts a child, or if it's a couple that has one, all the way up to having eight or nine or ten children, I do think that children are, are hedges against against loneliness. And um, and I'm someone who tends toward loneliness. I'm actually not a great um, I'm not great at being at at solitude. 
some people are. I'm not. I like having people around, and it, it's reassuring to me. So having children around is is very comforting. I mean, they are they are they're children, but they're also companions and friends and and comforters, and I think that's really nice. Because my 11 year old likes poker, and for that she needs more players. <laughs> well, that's and that is true. We've trained up the 10 year old. Our 8 year old is not really into poker yet, so we have two more. Anna, who's five, and then the, the new boy, we'll get, we'll get him there when he's three or four. But if we could have a good five or six person, you know, hold him game with just our family, that would be a huge win. Yeah, and you're going to have to teach me on this because my 13-year-old is a fearless hold him player because he's always playing with my money. Well, we, you've got to play with chips. I mean, you don't, don't actually, you know, when he's ready to play with money, you send him out into high school to earn some money. Indeed. Okay, a couple of more becauses. Because when I think of those countries where birth rates are so low that nobody has siblings anymore, I get sad. I do. I do. I think, that's, I think siblinghood is, is wonderful. I was really lucky. I am really lucky to have three siblings, and, um, and it's hard to imagine life without them. They are the people who know you best. They're the only people who know what it is to grow up in your household with your parents, your grandparents, and that's a very special relationship. And I, do, I don't believe that I don't believe what some of my only children friends tell me, which is, oh, well, cousins make up the difference or close friends make up the difference. I don't think it's the same. Absolutely. And because not being inclined to rock climbing, microdosing, or day trading, I need something a little risky. <laughs> uh, yes. I, I, I would say that I, many of my friends have that thing that they do that sets them apart a little bit, especially as we get middle-aged and boring in lots of other ways. And, uh, you know, whether it's some sort of mildly extreme sport or whether it's, you know, gambling, which is not something I do, again, outside of the family uh, poker table. And, uh, but, you know, having a fifth kid strikes people as, as, uh, as a little bit edgy. So I'm, I'm happy to, <laughs> I've got to do something that raises people's eyebrows, right? I, mean, I, don't, I don't wear weird bow ties. So right. <laughs> what am I going to do? What are you going to do? And this could be the best of all of them, I think, because having children has made our marriage stronger. Well, that's true. And I, I you know, how could, I guess there are marriages that are weakened by children. I mean, in our case, in a very kind of prosaic, obvious way, it gives us even more common ground, even more things that we uh, that only we understand about each other, which is to say, being the parent of this child or this one or this one or this one or this one. Um, and look, let's be frank, it's really hard to split up if you're together supporting five kids or even one kid. I mean, I think that I think marriages without children are more likely um, to fail because there's less of a common project and it's easier to separate. Um, that doesn't mean people should have children to, to stay together. I, don't, I think that would be a, a false inference. But, um, but certainly in our case, we feel more unified and like we have more to, that we can only do in the world together because we have children. Well, there's more ties that bind in the end. I mean, infinitely more ties that bind uh, with more kids. Because I'm going to weep like a baby when I drop my youngest daughter for her first day of kindergarten, and it will help if I know... It's not my last first day of kindergarten. Well, that's true. I'm very sappy. So <laughs> every, every milestone pretty much destroys me. So as I, need, I need more milestones coming down the pike. And now, you know, I'm 44 and my son was just born. So, you know, I'll be 62 before we're empty nesters. So by then, maybe I'll be a little bit hardened and, uh, and cynical and able to take it a little bit more. But, uh, but not yet. Well, we want to thank you, Mark, for joining us. Mark's the author of The Wall Street Journal essay, Yes, 
we really do want to have a fifth child. Mark has a PhD in religious studies at Yale. His wife is a lawyer. He's been writing, well, about all kinds of things for places like the New York Times, Harper's Magazine, and Atlantic. Mark Oppenheimer's story, his family's story, here on Our American Stories. And this is Our American Stories, and we tell stories about everything here on this show, from the arts to sports, and from business to history, and everything in between, including your stories. Send them to OurAmericanStories.com. That's OurAmericanStories.com. There's a Your Stories icon right on the top of our browser. Just click it, and we have a nice form you can fill out. Your stories are some of our favorites. They're the heart. They're the soul of what we do. And now it's time for another installment of The McClellan Files, where we go deep inside the life of Bob McClellan. Bob is one of our favorite features on this show. I met him probably about three to four years ago. Somebody had told me Bob's a great storyteller. Met him out in California. Met him not far from San Francisco. And I just couldn't stop listening. Four hours just flew by. And now, well, you're about to listen to another of the many stories we've done by Bob. Today's episode is one of adventure, entitled Crocodiles and Cannibals. Take it away, Bob. In January of 1996, I sat with 11 other scuba divers on the top deck of a 150-foot liveaboard, watching the sunset over the mountains of Guadalcanal. Leaving the biting, blood-sucking mosquitoes and flies behind, our boat moved away from the shore and headed out to sea. The cooling ocean breeze changed the hot and humid air of the jungle to one more conducive for a livelier exchange among the divers. Scuba diving is always the favorite subject of conversations among divers. They've been travelers to another world, and their conversations express the wonders of what they've seen. They discuss all the places they've been, the animals and plants they have seen, and sometimes tell stories that are quite harrowing. I asked one of the divers how many dives he'd done. He said 5,000. Another had 3,500, and so on. One turned to me and said, how many dives have you done? I said, 10. Hey, Ted, 10? How long have you been diving? Just a couple months, I replied. What brought you to such a primitive and isolated place like the Solomon Islands? They said I wanted to see Guadalcanal, and my dad landed on this island with the 1st Marine Division in 1942 and spent six months of his life here fighting and holding the airport at Henderson Field. They were quiet for a few moments until another asked quietly and almost sentimentally, Is your father still alive? No, I said he died in 1986. I'm sure he would have been touched that you made this trip. What do you think he would say if he knew that you came here? I started laughing. What would my father say? He'd say, what the hell's the matter with you? 
Are you out of your mind? Why would you go to such a godforsaken place like that for? I mean, for God's sakes, those people are cannibals. They eat people over there. You'd be lucky if they don't cut your head off. Now, I used to think he was exaggerating about the island until I bought a book at the hotel lobby in Honiara, which had a picture of a bunch of shrunken heads piled up in a small hut along the shore someplace. We sailed and dove around different islands for a few days when one morning I came up to the deck for the daily dive briefing and saw something that I had not counted on before paying for this voyage. There, in front of some folding chairs, was a blackboard. In the upper left-hand corner was a drawing depicting our first dive of the day. It was a crude drawing of a cave underwater, with a long snout filled with teeth of a saltwater crocodile sticking out. The dive master announced that our first dive of the day was a journey into a cave to see a saltwater crocodile. Oh, the only voice I could hear after that was that of my dad who late at night would describe to me how the Marines would be dug in along the perimeter of the airfield, waiting for the Japanese to attack. His face would grimace as he recounted the grisly screams of the Japanese soldiers and the thrashing of the water by those who were attacked by the crocodiles while trying to cross the river at night. My father was not a man to be intimidated, but the saltwater crocodiles of Guadalcanal made him so squeamish that he would grimace as he described the sounds no one asked me after the briefing, what would your father say if he knew you were going into a crocodile's cave? The saltwater crocodile is the largest reptile in the world in terms of mass, weighing well over 1,000 pounds. The males can reach a length of up to six or seven meters. This is a large-headed species with a heavy set of jaws containing 75 teeth that can exert pressure of several tons. When eating, they don't chew their food. They just grip it in their mouth and swallow it whole. They have to eat rocks to help them digest their food. Saltwater crocodiles are huge, aggressive, territorial, and plentiful in these waters. The dive master asked the group who wanted to go. I never minded getting in harm's way as risk makes life more exciting, but I didn't want to risk standing right in front of it and get eaten by it. But my choice was either to express my fear and concern or get in the boat and go. So I got in the boat. I prayed that no one else did because my dive partner was the dive master and where he went, I had to go. Unfortunately, three drivers did volunteer. As we motored over to our drop-off location, the dive master asked me if I wanted to go into the cave. And you're listening to Bob McClellan and What a Storyteller. And by the way, if you want to hear more of Bob's stories, again, go to ouramericanstories.com and on the search bar, just put in Bob McClellan's name and out will pop, my goodness, over a dozen, maybe more stories about Bob, his father, his life in the Marine Corps, and so much more. When we come back, more of the McClellan Files here on Our American Stories. And again, please, there are storytellers like Bob all over this country. So please send your stories or if you know someone like Bob in your town and every town has at least one Bob McClellan, get us in touch with him or her uh, so we can get the stories of your town and their stories too. Again, when we come back, more of Bob McClellan, Crocodiles and Cannibals, his trip to Guadalcanal 
where his dad had held an airfield back in 1942, here on Our American Stories. and the McClellan Files. When we last left off, Bob was scuba diving Guadalcanal, where his dive master asked if he wanted to enter a cave to see the deadly saltwater crocodile. Let's continue with Bob. Lacking his curiosity, I casually responded, no, no, not today, maybe some other time. But you know, actually, I would really love to see one in the zoo. He smiled and gave me instructions to wait outside the cave for him. Chances are, he said, he won't be in there this late in the morning, and in any case, they would not be too long. We went over the side of the boat and into the water. Swimming along the reef at 40 feet, the sunlight of the coral and the fish created a brilliant kaleidoscope of color. The water was as clear as glass. The visibility, at least 150 feet, and the temperature was 83 degrees. Rays of sunlight shot through the water, illuminating the coral, the sea fans, and the fish. The brilliant life and color that surrounded us on that reef are what makes the Solomons one of the most famous and beautiful dive locations in the world. But in spite of the beauty all around me, all I could think about was the photo of a long snout with rows of giant teeth of a crocodile mounted in the lobby of the hotel. All that was missing was the trapped body of Bob McClellan painfully clenched in his mouth. Swimming slowly over the top of the reef, the fish was from right up to my face and stared at me through my mask. Looking at me eyeball to eyeball, they looked like they were trying to figure out, well, what kind of fish am I? Or what the heck am I doing down here? The sharks, the sharks circled close by with one eye watching every move I made, perhaps wondering the same thing. To them, I was the alien in this world. Was I something to be feared or eaten? When we reached the cave, the black hole of its opening was like looking into a giant mouth. The crocodile prey would be taken through that mouth and go down to the lava tube throat into the belly of the earth and be eaten. Floating before that orifice, my dive master signaled for me to wait, and armed with their flashlights and cameras, they disappeared into the darkness of the cave. Floating with neutral buoyancy in liquid space far from the mothership, I just marveled at the exquisite vista of color that surrounded me. It was so beautiful and serene. The only sound I could hear was that of the expelled air from my regulator. My only movement was the gentle sway of the current. With my arms folded across my chest, I just slowly bobbed up and down, 
blowing bubbles and waited for them, when all of a sudden a thought popped into my mind. What if he's not in there? If he's not in there, that means he's out here. Then where in the heck is he? Suddenly, I regretted coming on this trip, and now it was too late. I feared the entire vast Pacific Ocean that that crocodile would be hidden close by watching me, just waiting for him to move in for the kill. A chill covered my body, realizing that being suspended in water at 40 feet of depth, he could come upon me from any direction. Now all of my thoughts would become inflamed by my imagination. What could I do? If he did come at me, where could I go? I knew going into his cave with four other divers was a bad idea, and so was trying to beat him off with my flashlight and camera. That clearly would not work. Even heading to the surface with my legs dangling out of water, waiting for a boat didn't appeal to me at all. I was already in a life and death struggle and he had not even appeared. I just didn't know what I would do, or what I could do, except just stay there and wait. It was my only option, just stay where I am and wait. And I still turned my head anxiously around and around, trying to look in every direction at once. My breathing accelerated as I realized how vulnerable I was, floating there alone. My wetsuit was not a suit of armor. It was more like sandwich wrap for a crocodile. A thousand pound beast, so big and powerful like a crocodile, would not even bother to unwrap my wetsuit before eating. Why didn't I just stay on board, I asked. My vision was limited to only one direction at any moment. I could only see 10% of my surroundings at any one time. I rotated my head around to see in as many directions as I could. My head bounced like a bobblehead doll, looking above me, beneath me, behind me, below me, in front of me for that 21-foot reptile. My heart rate was high. I felt like bait hanging in mid-space waiting to be eaten while I prayed for my companions to return. I don't know how long I was alone before the divers emerged from the cave. In a state of fear, the sense of time freezes and becomes motionless as the angst becomes permanent and seems like it's going to last forever. Judging by the lack of any excitement from the divers, I knew the crocodile was not at home, but that means I was right. He is out here. He's probably still hiding somewhere, waiting for the right moment to trap me in his jaws, pull me down underwater to drown me, and eat me whole in his cave. He's out there somewhere. When the dive master signaled to me the are you okay sign, I lifted my air gaze to show him it was sitting right on the red zone at 500 PSI. I could see the surprise on his face as he saw that somehow I quickly went through almost a whole tank of air and had to surface right away. He quickly motioned for me to surface as time underwater is not measured in minutes. It's measured in pounds per square inch of air. Air is time. Without the one, the other ceases. I was filling my orange sausage and BC vest with air while blowing bubbles from my whistle before I even breached the surface. The whirring sound of the little boat to ferry me back to the mothership was a welcome relief. Climbing in, I just waited for the crunch of his big teeth sinking into my calf and pulling me back underwater to head straight to his rock dining room. I wanted to get out of that water as fast as I could. Back on board, the divers 
We're having a nice lunch, gobbling grilled shrimp and sucking and tearing meat out of a lobster. Next to the grill was a pile of fish waiting to be cooked. Looking at their dead and lifeless bodies waiting to be eaten, I felt sorry for them. They had my sympathy that day, as I too might have been on the menu as the catch of the day. And you've been listening to Bob McClellan, and my goodness, what storytelling. By the way, for anybody who has ever done any scuba diving, and I have, air is time. And my goodness, seeing that red on the dial is terrifying. And you just don't realize that if you're scared or you're nervous, which I always was, and gave it up. I just gave up scuba diving because I didn't enjoy it. I was too scared and too nervous. Always thinking about what was coming around the bend. Just didn't like it. I snorkel now. It's more fun. By the way, if you want again to hear more of Bob McClellan's work, go to the McClellan Files. Type that in our search bar at Our American Stories. And what you'll hear, especially the stories about his father, oh my goodness, be still my heart. It's right up there with what Pat Conroy did writing about his father. And great work, as always, to Joey Cortez, who produced this piece. And thanks, as always, to Bob for lending his voice to us and just continuing to pour his storytelling and heart into our work. Bob McClellan's story, Crocodiles and Cannibals, here on Our American Stories. Hey there. This is Joey Cortez, the producer of The McClellan Files. You can catch all of Bob's work at OurAmericanStories.com. Here's a preview of some of his stories if you want to catch more. As a parent, I learned eventually I could not really direct my children's lives anymore. Oh yeah, I could influence or coerce them, but I was no longer the director. In this conversation with him that night, I realized I'd become a spectator. Standing before me on top of the table with his boots straddling my tray was Sergeant Calvert. He looked down at me with the visage of a wrathful god. I thought he was going to kick my mouth in with the polished leather toe of his boot. I took advantage of my height, reach, and experience and kept him back from me to score quick points while not exposing myself too much. We moved across the ring, and as we were next to the ropes, I saw him open his gloves and quickly slam two hard lefts and a right cross into his face. I wanted to avoid sentiment in the conversation unless my father had something to say, but I really could not let these last moments pass without expressing some feelings. I told him I had to go out of town for a few days and I wanted to talk with him before I left. Leaning closer to the bed to avoid raising my voice, I said, Dad, Dad, I just want you to know what a great father you are and how much I love you. I'm going to miss you very much, Dad. I'm going to miss you very much. Bob is one of the greatest storytellers in this country. Be sure to check out all of his work at OurAmericanStories.com. Search The McClellan Files at OurAmericanStories.com. And we continue with our American stories. And now 
we bring you the story of someone whom you likely don't know, but will be glad to have met. John Farnham grew up on a ranch in Helena, Montana. And here he is with his story. I was, uh, I was adopted. My mom and dad tried to have children, couldn't get pregnant, went to Catholic Charities, and Catholic Charities helped them get my sister, Janae. Shortly after they got Janae, Catholic Charities called and said, I know that you have Janae. Would you consider taking another baby? We have a young mom coming, and we need to find a home. My birth mother, she was 14 when she got pregnant with me. And so my mom and dad said the ultimate that changed my life. They said, yes, we, we would love that. Right after they got me, my parents ended up getting pregnant. And so I have a biological brother to my adoptive parents and a biological sister to my adoptive parents. So it all happened very rapidly. From the time they got Janae till the time that my youngest sister was born, there is only five and a half years difference between the oldest and the youngest child in four kids. So it was like a daycare center all the time at our house. Throw in a cousin or two, some friends, and that's how our life rolled. We always were surrounded by tons of family. Part of that, I think, is also being raised on the ranch. It was such a communal part of our life. Food is very important, so we would have dinners together every single night. My grandfather and grandmother lived on the ranch. My uncle lived on the ranch. Everybody just kind of, the nucleus of our family was the ranch. When I was six years old, my dad got diagnosed with a frontal lobe brain tumor, which affects 100% of your executive function. They decide they need to operate on his brain, and they did brain surgery very successfully. However, it changed who he is as a human being. Anytime you have that kind of trauma in your brain, it dramatically shifts who you are. Prior to his brain tumor, he would take all of us kids out camping. He would water ski with us on his shoulders. He would play the piano just by ear. He never had piano lessons and could play anything he heard. He's an incredibly brilliant man. After his brain tumor, uh, that man no longer existed. And so being six, it was really hard for me growing up to understand who our friends remembered as my dad and the stories they would tell about him because they weren't stories that I remembered. The stories that I remembered were much more challenging. They were much more traumatic. It was much more stressful because all of a sudden we went from a two-parent income in this home to just my mom. Not only just my mom, but my mom having to care for all of his children and care for my dad. The dynamic of what she thought she was, her married life was going to look like changed so dramatically. And my dad was only 35 years old when this happened. So his life, too, changed dramatically. 35-year-olds go to work every day. 35-year-olds, their network of friends are people that they tend to work with. All of a sudden, my dad didn't have that. And so there were some really dark days growing up. And if it weren't for the family and my mom's friends from her work, I don't know how, how we would have done it. I don't know how my mom did it, quite frankly. Um, she is a hero to me. She, I, um, she passed away two years ago, and the, the ultimate last thing I said to her was a thank you for saying yes. The yes changed my life. And the yes was when Catholic Charities called. So if ever I were to get a tattoo, 
it would be the word yes. Because that so is also the way I try to live my life. Be open to opportunities. Be open to what comes your way and say yes. You never know how it's going to change someone's life or your own. I was a student at the University of Wyoming in Laramie. And my grandmother, uh, my dad, my adopted dad's mother had passed away. And I, it, this was in January. And I thought, man, this hurts. Why does this hurt so badly? Because, I mean, she's not my blood. It shouldn't hurt. She's my grandmother, I know, but it's, you know, not my blood. Just thinking, thinking too, you know, too much. And so at that point, I decided I really wanted to find my birth mother. So I told my mom and my dad, and they're like, anything we can do to help you, we are happy to do. And we've always told you that, and, and we stand by that. So she gave me the lawyer at Catholic Charities who handled my case. I reached out, and they said, you know, write a letter to your birth mother. In that letter, you can say whatever you want, but send it to us, we'll send it on to her. So I did that, and I called about a, five days later. Have you heard anything from my mother? No, uh-uh. And this went on. I would call every day and my ideas of hope and that I had this other family out there somewhere that was as crazy and wild and fun and dynamic as my adopted family, those ideas and dreams and wishes started dissipating. And I started getting a little anxious and a little bit angry because I wasn't hearing back from her. And I thought, well, how, how dare she? I just, all I need to know is, do I have anything to worry about medically? I don't need anything from her. I don't want anything from her. I simply want to know that everything is going to be fine, that I want to know her story. I want her to know I'm, I'm in great hands, that I have a wonderful, loving family. So I asked the paralegal in moments of frustration, I said, what is plan B? Because I'm not satisfied not knowing now. And she said, well, we can go through the Office of Vital Statistics in Montana and track every time that she got married or changed her name or changed an address. We can, we can track her down. And I said, okay, I, that's good to know that there's a plan B. Well, from January to spring break, which was in March, zero word from my birth mother. So I went home for spring break and called Catholic Charities and said, okay, I just arrived at the ranch. I'm in Montana. Let's go and do plan B. I'll be up to your office in 25 minutes. And they said, give me, give me five minutes. I'll call you right back. So they called right back two minutes later. And they said, what do you want to know? We, we have your record. It's fully up to date and you can know anything you want. And I said, I don't want to know anything right now over the phone. I'm going to come to your office and we're going to sit with my mom and dad and we'll learn about my birth mother together. And we sat there and, and got the basics of my birth mother, and she was, at the time, a student at the University of Utah, finishing up her architecture degree. It was finals week for her, so timing was, was not ideal. And it wasn't ideal for my adopted family, certainly. Over the course of the next seven days, I was on the phone with my birth mother in my bedroom, learning about her, having her learn about my life, and it would be for hours and hours at a time. All the while, my family is outside my bedroom door hearing this, seeing this, witnessing this, knowing that I am busy developing this relationship with the woman who gave me away for adoption and who blessed me to be with this family. I never realized what the optic of that looked like until afterwards. When, when my birth mother, she would check in with Catholic Charities on me every single year. 
Anytime she got married, and there were four of them, four marriages, anytime she moved, phone numbers in those days didn't port with you. Phones always changed when you got a new address. And so she kept my file completely current with every time she moved, every phone number changed, every address. But she would call every single year and check on me. And one time they slipped at Catholic Charities. When I was 12 years old, when my birth mother called Catholic Charities to check on me, Catholic Charities had not disclosed my name up until this time and they accidentally said, John is doing fine, he is in school. And so now my birth mother knew that I was John. My adopted family had to be told because they disclosed my name. She didn't know my last name, but she knew my name. And it terrified my parents because that was the first time that they knew that my birth mother was checking in on me every single year. And I didn't realize this until I was an adult and my mom, my adopted mom told me what had happened and how it rocked her world. How she really thought that my birth mother was coming back to get me. And when we come back, we continue with this remarkable story, a love story, no doubt, and very different than most of ours, but in many ways the same too. John Farnham's story, here on Our American Stories. We're back with Our American Stories and the story of John Farnham, the gay son with a Catholic adoptive mother and a Mormon birth mother, only in America, folks. And by the way, I love that he said, the yes of the adoptive mother changed my life. It's how I live my life. Say yes. A really fascinating guy, John Farnham is. Let's continue with his story. You can imagine that knowing the dynamic, it's very easy to think you understand why you were given up for adoption. It's pretty clear to me. She was a young mother, 14-year-old, 15-year-old. She should have been adopted. That thinking was not really her thinking at all of why she gave me up. Her thinking was she didn't feel loved in her own home and she wasn't going to bring a baby into that home. So it was a much more complex decision, a 15-year-old making that kind of a decision. That's pretty profound and really deep thinking. So the scenario of the pregnant teen going away to school is exactly the scenario that my birth mother was under. Sent away to school, in air quotes, to the Florence Crittenden home to have a baby. Out of the eyes of her family, out of the eyes of her family's friends, she was sent away to go have a baby. Yet that didn't stop her parents, my birth grandparents, from coming to Helena when I was born, bringing clothing to take me home in um, and raise me, and for her to say absolutely not, no. So I, I have such respect for my mom for being strong, sticking to her decision, and doing what was best truly for me. She got pregnant again two years later, 
and was old enough at that point, she was 17, that she kept my half-sister. And so she moved out of the house and she raised her as her daughter. And so when, when I'm back for spring break and I'm getting to know my birth mother in front of my adopted family, they already have this anxiety that I could have been taken from them at any time. It became really clear the night before I left there were a lot of tears at my house and a lot of tears of fear and really hurt feelings that my sister, I remember Anne saying, what if you like your other sisters more than you like me? What if we never see you again? What if you like this family more than you like us? And it was heartbreaking. It was the most heartbreaking thing I think I've ever done. And I realized at that moment, the gravity of what they had experienced over the course of seven days. And how do I fix this? There's no way to fix it. It's just to continue to love and be loved. Um, I tried my best to fix it. I wrote little love notes on stickies and hid them everywhere. Hid them in food containers, hid them in the remote control batteries, hid them in my mom's purse. I mean, everywhere you could imagine, I hid love notes to my sisters, my brother, my mom and dad to assure them that I was going nowhere. It just wasn't my intent at all but they didn't know that. They only know what they witnessed, and what they witnessed was an entire week of me on the phone with my mother getting to know her and her getting to know me. So this is March, and I learned from my birth mom that she had not told her family about me. She also never received the letter that was sent. Even to this day, she has never received that letter. So. The first thing she had to do was tell my sisters that they have a brother. And my sisters, when I met them for the first time, they were like, now we understand. Every spring, mom would go into this deep depression. She was missing you. She knew your birthday. She knows your birthday. You, every spring, we would lose her for a while. She just would slip into this depression. And now we understand why. Well, it was only a week later that I got back to college. My birth mom drove from Salt Lake City, Utah to Laramie to meet me for the first time. And it was really a moment of anxiety, as you can imagine. The arrangement was I would meet her at the hotel. Well, the day leading up to our meeting, she, she arrived in the evening, it was really stressful. I go to her hotel. The hotel has exterior doors, so there's no interior hallway. I knock on her door, she opens the door, and I'm blown away. Blown away because I had often wondered if I were ever in a room with my birth mother, would I be able to pick her out? Absolutely. I looked at this woman and she hugged me so tight and all I wanted to do was push her away to look at her because I, I was looking in the mirror. I could not believe I could look so much like another human being in my life. It was so amazing to me. We had two entirely different perspectives on that meeting. She was reuniting with a son she has been missing for 24 years. I am meeting an adult, and I cannot believe this adult looks just like me. And so our perspectives were so incongruous and so interesting. It was, it was a fascinating moment. Here's what I remember most about, uh, second most about that moment of meeting her. Um, she had me go down to her car with her to get her handgun out of the vehicle because she travels with a handgun. 
as a single woman. And I thought, oh my Lord. Now, I'm not anti-gun, I, I grew up with guns, but I just thought, how interesting. You know, our guns were to go and get gophers and, you know, recreate. Hers was really for self-protection, and I never thought about using a gun in that way until I met my birth mother. It was like this regressive behavior. We did things like she wanted to take me to the zoo. It was short of just tying a balloon onto my wrist and taking me through the zoo. It was just shy of that. And this went on for the whole weekend. And it was really an important, I think, time for me, and obviously an important behavior for her, to have kind of some of those years condensed into some experiences that she didn't get. Well, as you can imagine, there is a lot of tears, a lot of apologizing, a lot of I'm sorry, and, and I, I can't accept her apology. She gave me an incredible life because it could have gone the other way easily. She opened doors for me that never would have been opened before. She introduced me and gave me the opportunity to be introduced to an incredibly loving family. I want to share with you a Thanksgiving that I had probably about five years ago. And we are all sitting around the table, Tracy's children, Tara and Steve, um, my mom, Trina, and Paul and I. And my mom says, let's go around the table and say the things we're most thankful for. And almost every one of them were thankful that we were together for the first time ever at a holiday and that Paul and I came to spend time with them. And I thought this was the most beautiful demonstration of love and of understanding that I'd ever seen. We were all in her home, around her table, and grateful and loving on one another. It was probably the most special Thanksgiving I've ever had. The turkey got burnt because my mom is not a cook. But when my mom and I were in the kitchen kind of wrapping up the meal, I remember vividly the sounds coming from the living room. And it was all giggles and all love, and it was beautiful. Being adopted, I'm very close to adoption, very close to foster care work, very close to the conditions and the ideas around improving outcomes for kids who are in the foster care system. Um, The idea of adopting an older child is something that is appealing to me, and here is why. If my mom were alive, I would still be calling her for her goulash recipe. I talk to my mom more now that she has passed away than I did even when she was here. Um, Kids still need parents. Whether they are 18 or 25 or 48, kids still need parents. And for a foster kid to age out of the system with no parent, it's just, it's hard to imagine. Um, It was a good friend of mine right after my mom died And I said, I just have this instinct I want to call her. And she said, don't worry about calling. Just talk to her. She's listening. Talk to her just as you're driving or whenever whenever you want to. And it was true. That's how I talk to her more now that she's passed than when she was alive. I talked to her when I was going to pick out the Christmas tree. My mom and dad would always come to Denver. We would go pick our Christmas tree out together. And my mom would sit there and watch me decorate it. And, and tell stories and sing Christmas carols. She could still do that. She could still be there to pick out the Christmas tree. I just had to share it with her. 
I can't imagine what heaven looks like with my mom there and my grandmother and my aunts and because our family is wild and crazy. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know. God was is ready for this, but he's got it. He's got them all. And the, it, I bet it's a, a party up there. No, no question. I, I cannot wait to get there because <laughs> it's going to be fun. And that was John Farnham. And what a story. What a beauty. By the way, what a decision his birth mother made. She didn't feel loved in her own home and didn't want to bring up a baby in that home. And John had noted that was profound thinking for a girl because, my goodness, she was all of 14. She was a girl. She wasn't a woman yet. What a sensitive soul John was and that now he thinks deeply about adopting an older child. And, my goodness, there's no greater gift you can give to anybody than to not let a foster kid age out of the system because then they never have a parent, ever. And what a thing. I know I still talk to my dad. 88 years old, I still talk to him. My mom has passed. I still talk to her all the time. And I can't imagine. It's unimaginable living life without a parent, without that kind of unconditional love. John Farnham's story, by the way, this adopted child is the deputy disruptor at the Mortgage Family Foundation, and he has helped give away $100 million so far. A love story that continues. John Farnham's story here on Our American Stories.